Hi, everyone. My name is Christian Rallone. I'm the co-president of Wharton Fintech and your host. Today, we have Frank Rotman, a founding partner of QED Investors. QED is a VC firm focused on early stage fintech investments in the U.S. and abroad. Since its founding in 2008, QED has invested in notable fintech firms such as Credit Karma, SoFi, Nubank, Avant, GreenSky, and Lendup. Frank started his career at Capital One in 1993, spanning a number of roles and focus on lending. Frank, thanks so much for joining. Uh, welcome to be here. Tell us a little bit more about yourself and your career prior to QED. Yeah, so I've been in and around the world of uh, finance and fintech for uh, 25 years or so. It dates all the way back to Signet Bank, which was the precursor to Capital One, uh, helped spin off Capital One, which was one of the very early fintechs in the 90s, um, kind of a standalone credit card company that eventually grew up to become a bank. Um, did that for a number of years, played a, quite a few roles there, helping to grow the company. And, you know, after that helped uh, build a student lending company and then joined back up with the co-founder of uh, Capital One, Nigel Morris, uh, to help create what became QED Investors. And what first attracted you to venture capital? Uh, it was really Nigel and myself just trying to figure out what we wanted to do next. It, it wasn't venture capital calling us. It was us trying to figure out what we could do as act two. And, you know, for the two of us, uh, we actually had a third partner as well, Caribou Honig, who also came from Capital One. Um, we sat down and really thought about, you know, the skills we had, where they could be applied. And, um, you know, the world of small startups and helping to grow them into larger companies seemed like a good place to start. Um, we really think of ourselves as operators masquerading as investors. You know, we make our living these days by investing, but the skills we have are as operators. And we spend a lot of time helping the companies by rolling up our sleeves and, you know, giving advice based on the 25 plus years experience I have and 30 plus that Nigel, you know, has. And we've now built a team of about a dozen people and really grown the business. And what kind of advice do you usually give to a lot of these early stage investments that you make? What's something that you think that most early stage founders don't realize that comes across during board meetings? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of generic advice, you know, that I give and I feel almost like a broken record, but it seems to work, you know, go over well with the founders and, you know, some of the generic messages hit home. Um, you know, one of the generic messages that I really like operators to internalize is that there is no such thing as building a great company from scratch. Um, you really have to build a good company before you build a great company. And that means really having intermediate points along the way where you can check in, you can see how the business is doing, you can prove that the unit economics work. You know, you really have something that's working. And what you find as an operator is that every time that you, you know, stop and figure out what you've learned, you have to look around and figure out what permissions you have to grow the business in a different direction or continue going in the same direction. But, you know, the thought of instantly building a great business, it just doesn't exist in the real world. You've got to build a good business along the way. And what kind of signposts do you look, does QED look for during the investment process? You spoke a little bit about unit economics. To what degree are you looking at market? It seems that QED is mostly focused on lending given your prior experience at Capital One. What are other notable milestones? Yeah, we, we actually invest across all categories in uh, the financial services world. We happen to have quite a few lenders because it's something that we know, you know, as good as anyone else out there. 
Um, but we are invested in, you know, core banking technology and payments in wealth management. So we, we do have a broad vista of what we look at. Um, you know, but one way of thinking about it is as you build a business, when you first see a company, you know, they, um, you know, talk about the market, they talk about how large it is, they talk about the problems in the market and how their company is going to solve these big problems. And all of that is the same with every company, right? It's just about describing a problem and describing a better solution. Um, the other commonality is that, you know, every one of these companies has a spreadsheet that if it were to come true, describes an amazing business. And the problem is when you first see a company, every single number in that spreadsheet, if you're an early stage investor, is kind of made up. And that's okay. I mean, that's, that's how you start. You start with assumptions in a spreadsheet to kind of say, these are the things that if they were to come true, we could build a great business. And a financial model is really just a, an articulation of how you see the company evolving and growing up but just expressed in numbers. And a lot of the advice that we give to companies is to really stare at that spreadsheet and look for the key drivers and figure out each step of the way, what are you trying to learn? You know, which are the critical drivers? How much do you know about them? Um, can you structure, you know, the capital that you've just raised to get signal and prove that you're right or wrong on critical assumptions? And if you prove that you're right, you can raise capital to continue to grow the way you thought you were going to grow. And if you're proven wrong, you've got to figure out, you know, some new way of assembling the business, um, you know, so that you can describe an attractive future for the company. So a lot of what we do is really dig in deep and understand what the company knows, you know, help them put learning agendas in place, you know, figure out how we can learn the most for the least amount of money and really be disciplined at growing the business. And then within that framework, what differentiates a good from a great company? Is it massive distribution? Is it really good unit economics, a great team? What divides those two things? Um, it, it's kind of all of everything in order to be a great company. I mean, if we're honest, there aren't that many great companies. There are plenty of good companies. And there are also a lot of really bad companies. And, you know, sometimes it's difficult to figure out which is which from the beginning. Um, you know, it is absolutely necessary, but not sufficient to have a great team. You know, it is absolutely necessary, but not sufficient to have a large market that you're attacking. Um, you have to have product market fit. You have to have unit economics that work. Um, you don't have to have all of these things day one. But the more of them that you can figure out quickly or you can assemble quickly, the better chances you have for success. I mean, uh, just about all of our great companies, you know, have grown incredibly well for a number of years and then they hit a wall. And, you know, part of what differentiates them from OK companies is the management team figures out how to get over that wall. And it means they have enough degrees of freedom in the model they have, or you know they're smart enough to realize that they're hitting a wall and have already thought about it. But you know there are teams that we've backed in the past, and we know from other you know venture firms where they hit that wall, and that wall is permanent. You know, and that could be quality of team or quality of business model. So you know there there are a lot of things that are necessary but not sufficient. But to build a great company, you've got to put them all together. And you spoke a little bit about maximizing learning while minimizing cost. How do you then think about, let's talk about fundraising for a little bit. 
QED focused mostly on on seed and Series A. It seems. How do you think about at that stage maximizing le- lessons? Is it mostly around product market fit that you're trying to you know get across to, to the founders? What are they looking for? It's a good question. Um, you know, every business is different. There are some businesses that are more capital intensive than others, and you have to stare at that when making an investment decision. You know, so if you need to put twenty million or thirty million dollars into a company because you need an engineering team of fifty or a hundred people in two years to build product before you can test product market fit, you know that is one type of a company, and to us, it's a bit scary. Um, you know, the thought of putting twenty million dollars into something before you even get to tap the market and see if you're right—it's just hard. Um, you know, there are other companies where you could build, you know, a very simple version of the product where you can test it, you can put it out in market, you can get customer feedback. And, you know, with that customer feedback, you can figure out, you know, if you found something that really is a better solution and someone's willing to pay you for it. You know, so a lot of what we do is, you know, stare at the business model and the market, try to understand what needs to be built, but hopefully the founders have already figured some of that out. It's not that difficult these days to build at least, you know, something pretty basic um, and get feedback from the market, talk to potential prospects and customers and, you know, figure out if you're onto something. And, you know, once you find a pulse of response, um, you get a chance to actually interact with customers and figure out, you know, what they like and don't like and adjust from there. So a lot of the early stage is trying to get out there you know, and see if your hypothesis is actually right about having a better solution for a problem that people are willing to pay you for. So again, I mean, it's, it's unique for every business, but I think the commonalities are trying to figure out what the critical assumptions are in your business, that if you're right, you can continue going. And if you're wrong, you need to adjust and figuring out how to learn those as quickly as you can for as little money as you can. And it seems that generally speaking, those barriers to entry for new companies continues to come down. Is is that a fair assessment? It's a fair assessment in most spaces. Um, you know, the barriers for entry, you know, again, are different by business. Some businesses are regulated, you know, or they're, they're uh, attacking regulated uh, incumbents and require regulation to do what they need to do. And in banking, a lot of that's true. Um, so there are some barriers that still exist in the financial services world um, because not anybody can just go out and lend money or store money that's FDIC insured or move money between parties or give recommendation advice around investments. I mean, these are you know regulated activities, and that means that there are some barriers still. And there was a recent report that for 2018, the number of C and Series A rounds for fintech companies specifically was flat to, to down, at least in the U.S. How does that change QED's approach at all? Do you find that last year, for example, you were getting better terms that, or alternatively that you had to maybe write larger check sizes than you were anticipating? It's a good question. I mean, I don't think we've seen a noticeable difference in deal flow. Um, in fact, it might be healthier deal flow and more diverse deal flow than we've seen in years. 
Um, to put it in perspective, at the peak of the mania around building new lending companies, which was probably in the 2013-2014 period, um, I personally was seeing close to 200 new lending businesses a year. And there was no need for 200 new startups to exist in the space. So a lot of them never got funded, nor should they have been. But with that type of deal flow coming across our desk, you know, you scratch your head and say, when is too much too much? And, you know, now we're seeing a very healthy deal flow um, across many different segments of the fintech ecosystem. I think the quality of the teams is as good or better than it's ever been. You know, I think that it's not as scary a thing as it was or as new a thing as it was, you know, 10 years ago when we were first starting to fund fintech companies. Um, I think you can accomplish a lot for very little. And I think the teams that are coming to us now feel like they've used their own money and time, you know, to figure out a few things before trying to tap the capital markets. So, you know, series... Um, uh, seed stage companies these days feel more like Series A companies did 10 years ago um, because you've accomplished a, a fair bit before you're even tapping you know, capital. So I, I think it's kind of morphed a bit, but it's not unhealthy. Uh, there are exceptions to the rule. I think some of the early growth rounds are you know, attracting a lot of capital a little bit earlier than the companies are ready for it. But that's really just a capital strategy from you know the VCs that are putting money into companies with a lot of traction and momentum, uh, and it's a strategy for the companies and the boards to raise the money while they can. And on the flip side, you also see companies staying private for longer. How does that impact your strategy as an early stage investor? Um, the the ultimate you know, proof of building a great business is around building the business, not around, you know, the exit itself as a destination. You know, if you build a great business, it's a business that serves a lot of customers. Uh, you have a lot of revenue. You ultimately have a business model that has a lot of profit associated with that revenue. You know, you have great growth prospects ahead. And, you know, for QED, we're just focused on building great businesses. You know, it would be um, fantastic if there were more liquidity in the space overall. It gives more optionality for early stage investors to, you know, reinvest their capital. And for the majority of the life of QED, our capital was our own capital. Um, we hadn't raised outside capital until a little more than a year ago. And, you know, that meant that liquidity was important to us. But we weren't forcing liquidity. There's no way to really force liquidity. Uh, so we just focused on doing what we knew how to do, which is help build great businesses. Um, you know, as for the companies staying private longer, it just means that there are some later stage investors that are willing to invest in companies that are much larger than they were in the past, you know, keeping them private, giving them more optionality and flexibility on how they grow. Um, because once you're public, you really need to be able to describe your business model and project out eight quarters. Um, and then actually hit your numbers. And if the business is still going through a transition or figuring things out or, you know, scaling in a way that doesn't have the same predictability as a public markets company needs, then staying private is uh, a, a good strategy. You know, being public is not an easy thing. The, the counter of it 
is that being public adds a certain amount of discipline to a business that I personally think is healthy. Um, you know, having been part of a public company in the past, you know, helping to prepare the earnings releases and, you know, being part of that whole process, there is a lot of discipline that goes into managing a company that needs to deliver against results. So I, I think there's a balance about when you go public um, that I think the market is trying to figure out right now. And I think it will find its way. You know, some companies are probably taking too long to go public and, you know, some probably should stay private longer because they're still figuring things out. And let's talk a little bit more about the transition to public market companies. We've seen Green Sky, which IPO'd this summer uh, and hasn't performed too well in, 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 in the public market. And before that, Lending Club and Omdex similarly. What do you think is the disconnect between private market valuations and public market valuations? Do you think it's a lack of, to your point before, telegraphing expectations to public market investors? Or is there something else about how public markets are valuing these companies that private, mar private markets are missing? Yeah, I can talk generically. I mean, hard to talk about a specific public company because they are public. Um, but generically, what uh, I, I think the industry has to internalize and, and analysts, investors, and entrepreneurs is that the day that you invest in a company, especially if it's an earlier stage company, it, it's overvalued almost by definition, right? So if I invest in a PowerPoint where there actually isn't a business there, all it is is an idea management team, I'm really investing in the option to build a business, not in an actual business. So if I put money in, you know, $2 million, $3 million at a $10 million you know, pre-money valuation, it's not that the company is really worth $10 million or $12 million, right? Because no one would actually pay me that much if I invested in the business the next day I can't turn around and sell it to someone for $12 million. So if there isn't someone willing to match me on the other side of a trade, then it's really just optionality on building something that eventually will be worth hopefully a multiple of what I put into it. And every step of the way, if you think about a Series A and a Series B and a Series C, unless there's an actual buyer willing to pay that price to buy the entire company, it's overvalued. And there is a point where you know the valuation does catch up and there are buyers, natural buyers for companies. And, you know, eventually the test is either someone puts an offer on the table to buy the company and you say yes, or you go public, and then the public markets are deciding how much they're willing to pay for the company. And if you think about the journey about putting money into a company five, six, seven times before you end up tapping the public markets to say, what do you think this is worth? It's really hard to make sure that you get that entire journey perfectly right. You know, think about lining up every single check and making sure that you invest at the right price so you accrete value, you know, along the way. Just hard. And especially that last point where capital is invested, um, you know, you might only have a year or two years of growth before you end up going public. And at that point, you're trying to describe, you know, a growth strategy for the next three or four years and you're committing to a year or two worth of numbers. And it's just hard to get that entire equation right and get everyone to understand the business. So I think there's a bit of absorption, you know, where the private markets 
you know, might be overvaluing the companies relative to the public market's view. It could partially be that the public markets need to understand these complex business models and internalize what the growth potential really is and the earnings potential really is of these businesses. And it can take a while to really adjust and get that balance right before the market finally wakes up and says, this is, this is what uh, a stable value is for the company given where it is. So I think when a lot of these complex business models that are disrupting incumbents first hit the market, there's a period of uh, digestion. And I don't think the private markets or the public markets have quite gotten it right yet. So a mix of optionality to some degree, having a single seller in the private market and about lack of transparency or, or digestion. Yeah, the, the complexity of these models you know, is not as simple as uh, some of the, the models that have been out there in the market with the incumbents that the analysts already understand. Um, I can't tell you how many uh, conference calls post-earnings release that we had in the Capital One days where some of the analysts, all they cared about were asking questions about what do I fill into my own spreadsheet for growth in cell E16. You know, and they care about the micro at such a level that they uh, sometimes ignore the macro power of a business. And with some of these new models, the macro power is very, very profound. Um, if you play them out over a many-year period about where they're positioned in the market with the skills they have and the traction they have, a lot of the analysts are looking for what are next quarter's numbers and how do I plug the right number in my spreadsheet so that I can project earnings. So it's, it's a very different focus. And let's talk a little bit more about the different kind of, of exit scenario, consolidation or M&A. We've seen within the last six to seven months, Plaid acquired Quovo, Pfizer acquired First Data, Visa Earthport, PayPal has been very active as well. Do you expect this trend to continue from a consolidation perspective? I don't see why it won't. Um, you know, we spend a lot of time talking to banks. And, you know, the banks have finally woken up after a number of years to realize that, you know, these uh, earlier stage fintech companies, a lot of them are actually very additive to what they do. You know, some of them are competitive, but a lot of them are additive. And, you know, the superpower of a lot of these startups is, you know, shipping code uh, that uh, orients around products that, consumers and small business owners really, really like. It's it's kind of a UX, UI, API type world. And the newer companies understand this much better than the legacy companies. So when the legacy companies say, I really want some of that, they're talking about the product, they're talking about the UX, UI, they're talking about the consumer engagement that they could be jealous of. They're also talking about the teams and the skills and the technology platforms. And when you put it all together, you know, there's nothing to stop some of these bigger organizations from buying their way into growth. You know, there are some industries where this happens naturally. Look at the consumer packaged goods space. You know, the big brands are out there trying to innovate themselves. They're creating products for, you know, consumers. But at the same time, they keep an eye out for some of the products that are really flying off the shelves. And when they see something flying off the shelves, it could be because it's a product that, you know, they never would have thought of assembling or a management team that's doing something differently than they could have done 
there's nothing wrong with buying their way into market share and buying their way into new capabilities. So I think you're going to see some of the bigger, more well-capitalized companies, whether it's the, the newer players like the PayPals or some of the incumbents like the bigger banks uh, or the processors you know, or the rails, the payment rails like the Visas and MasterCards. I think you're going to see um, uh, you know, them go on, I won't call it a buying spree, but they'll selectively be buying some of the companies that fill in the missing pieces within their product suite and their skill set. And JP Morgan, to take one example, it seems that they're taking more of a build approach with you invest and fin their digital bank. Do you think then that they'll amplify those product offerings with some acquisitions, taking them as an example, we, we can generalize, obviously? Yeah, I mean, just generalizing, I, I prefer not to speak about specific companies. But I mean, a generalization is that banks do have tech teams, and they do have infrastructure. Um, the, the important question is how quickly they can ship code. And, you know, how good they are at actually understanding consumer needs. And I think one of the biggest problems within the banking ecosystem is that, you know, it's a world where if you make a mistake, uh, you get punished more than if you find something that works, right? Because it affects customers. And if it affects customers, it could turn into, you know, everything from complaints to regulatory issues. So if you think about the risk tolerance of, you know, a big organization, it goes through many, many layers of approval. And sometimes by the time it goes through those layers of approval, um, ideas get shut down. I mean, the way that I think about it is there is a huge disconnect between the way that uh, the startups actually build companies and the way that, you know, the incumbents actually build product. And the startups you know, really they have to get to a yes answer every day for problems that they face. So every single person in the organization has to figure out how to creatively get to yes. So everyone is motivated and pulling in the right direction because if they come up with enough no answers, you might as well shut the door. And from an incentive standpoint, they really only get paid seven years or eight years in the future if they're proven right enough times and they build a sizable business. You compare that to, let's say, a banking institution or a larger uh, company in the financial service ecosystem, where typically an executive is told what the goals are of the company, and they earn their bonus one year at a time. You know, they're told these are the things that you need to accomplish. Here's what I'm holding you accountable for. You know, look out somewhere between six months and a year, and here are the goals, and you need to hit them. And it's a world where they can probably hit 90 to 95% of their goals by saying no to everything new. So it's very easy for them to say no and just tweak everything that they already know how to do and figure out how to hit their bonus. So they're earning their bonuses one year at a time. They can say no to just about everything coming in the door and come close to hitting their bonus. And if they take on a risk, you know, it could lead to them getting in trouble versus, you know, if they can, can consistently hit their bonuses, you know, hit their targets, they could get promoted. So you end up with very different incentive structures, and it means that the early stage companies can typically move faster and do things because they're more creative and willing to take on um, risk at a very different level than a large organization. Um, so there are a lot of differences, but I think that's one of the most profound ones, why some of the bigger companies move very slowly.
And I think this might be a perfect segue into a presentation that you made about a year ago now called the Copernican Revolution. For our listeners, would you mind just summarizing what the takeaway from that presentation was? Yeah, at a, a very high level. I mean, uh, the presentation is called the Copernican Revolution in Banking. If anybody wants to uh, find a full copy of it, they can go to my blog at uh, fintechjunkie.com. It's only a few posts back. Um, but the concept behind the Copernican Revolution in banking is really drawing an analogy to Copernicus, who was the first scientist to challenge the a priori notion that the Earth was at the center of the universe. And what's interesting is that by challenging this notion, um, he was able to create a simpler uh, version of the world that was more accurate, but it required challenging you know, a thousand years of a priori belief in order to find a new way uh, to assemble the world that actually was more accurate and led to a very different view of uh, the world. And, you know, the same thing I, I think can be true in the banking world, where the banking world right now has an a priori view that there's a lot that isn't going right. And, you know, they point to some very specific things that are creating, you know, downward pressure on the banking ecosystem. You know, every bank that we talk to talks about regulatory scrutiny. They talk about capital requirements. You know, there are a lot of issues that they have in the overall system, you know, where they say it's harder to make money today than it was in the past. But there are other trends that if you stare at them um, might be the more profound way of looking at what's happening in the banking ecosystem and why some of the earlier stage and newer companies are starting to gain traction and some of the banks are having problems from a profit standpoint. And a lot of this comes down to the fact that uh, if you actually looked at a local bank or community bank, a credit union, a regional bank, or even a money center bank, the product suite that they have is very, very broad and sweeping. You know, so there's one bank that you know uh, I know quite well that when I was looking at helping them, I asked them about their entire product suite. And they basically handed me a list of 350 products that they offered to consumers and small business owners. And the chances of them actually being world-class in more than a handful of those were precisely zero. And in fact, the chances of them being world-class in even one or two of them were very slim. And the important question that needs to be asked now that information is, is basically readily available and channels are abundant for consumers and small business owners and commercial uh, business owners to really find product, is that if a rational consumer were armed with perfect information, would they choose your product? And more times than not, the answer within a bank is no. Right? If a rational consumer were armed with perfect information, they could find a better product than if they walked into their bank and decided to procure it. And that's a profound issue because consumers are being armed with more information and there are more channels for them to shop. So if your product isn't a best-in-class product on whatever dimension a consumer cares about most, then the chances are over time they're going to find that other product and they're going to leave you. So one of the commonalities of a lot of these, you know, earlier stage companies or companies that are, are fixated on single product or just a small suite of products 
is that they can manage a small suite of products to a level where they're world class and where they integrate and talk to each other, you know, where they're solving a distinct problem and that they can point to how they're better than the other products in the market. And the same can't be said for most of the products within the typical bank. And by being singularly focused, similarly, their survival depends on success of that one product, right? It does. And, you know, ultimately, once you succeed with a single product, you know, you, you then can stare at the brand permission that you have and customer permission that you have to go do other things. Um, you know, SoFi is a good example of that where they're offering more than just a student loan consolidation uh, you know, program today. They have other products that consumers are very interested in, but they had to start with a product. They had to do that single product well, and you grow up at some point to be able to do other things. So your thesis doesn't necessarily preclude companies, a lot of these monoline fintech companies from expanding into tangent products. It just says, focus on what you do well, and then take those lessons, as we mentioned before, and figure out how you can apply them to different product lines. Yeah, very much true. And I will say that, you know, it is impossible, and I, I use that word impossible, not, not lightly, to manage a suite of 300 products well. Right. So there, there is a number where uh, it is manageable at a world-class standard, and then there is a number where it, it just does not make sense because you're offering generic product at that point. You know, the other part of the Copernican Revolution, which I think is an important insight and a different way of looking at the world, is that not all banks or not all institutions, financial institutions, have to manufacture all of their own products. You know, once they have a channel into customers, and they might have a channel because they're world class at, you know, the core deposit account, you know, or they have the locations where they can attract customers that are really interested in you know storing their money um, but once they have a channel into customers they don't have to necessarily manufacture all of the products themselves they could procure world-class products from other providers on behalf of their customers and then be a distribution channel into their customers and take bounties for making introductions and I think it's a very different way of looking at the world almost assembling a world-class suite of products like Lego blocks and, um, you know, it's something that some banks that I've talked to in financial institutions are very interested in. And then there are others that they're very scared of it. Uh, I think it's going to be an important way of looking at the world. And one of the other players that came up in the, in the Copernican Revolution were these non-bank players. And now we're seeing, for example, Facebook introducing their stablecoin focused on remittances for uh, WhatsApp users in India. How concerned should other fintech players be about Facebook's entrance into, into, into financial services? Yeah, I mean, um, again, I, I reference that we talk to banks a lot, and I think it's uh, an interesting insight into what's happening with the incumbents. And what I'll say is there are more than one bank that I've talked to where they, they want to discuss the existential threat of non-banks offering uh, banking services you know, either through third parties or getting the licenses themselves to do it. And what I would say is it's not an existential threat. It's a threat, right? I mean, the, the existential threat means it might be coming, and a threat means it's actually here. And I think that 
you know, the larger organizations need to understand that there are large companies with amazing NPS scores, you know, brands that consumers and small business owners really love, with channels that can access them, with information that's very relevant. And you put all of those assets together and what they're missing uh, are the regulatory right, the legal right to offer certain services to their customers. Right. So unless you're a you know regulated bank with a bank charter, like you can't offer a core deposit account with FDIC insurance. Like you can't do that unless you're a banking institution. You know, if you don't have lending licenses, like you can't lend money. Um, but it doesn't preclude these organizations from being a channel, you know, into their own customers. And where the lift isn't very heavy, they might be able to get the licenses to do the services themselves, offer them themselves. And you're seeing that with players like Amazon with lending and you know, Square is going after some licenses to be able to do things with their customers. And, you know, there also are partnership opportunities, you know, Amazon looking to offer, you know, checking accounts to teens where they might partner with an FDIC insured banking organization to offer that product. And, you know, what's very powerful uh, is that these very large tech institutions, you know, touch tens of millions or hundreds of millions uh, of customers in the U.S. and some of them billions of customers globally. And, you know, the customers are very interested in procuring products from them because they trust some of these institutions um, as much or more than they do, you know, some traditional institutions like banks. So it's not an existential threat. It's really a question of, you know, are these institutions going to become channels into their customers where they offer uh, financial service products that might be other people's products, you know, or do they go procure licenses or get uh, permission to do uh, the services and offer the services themselves? So I, I think it's here. It's a matter of what it looks like. Um, and there might be some great partnership opportunities with some of the banks actually providing the service and, you know, some of these other companies being the channel. But I think that story is going to be written in the next handful of years. Let's talk about your outlook for, for 2019. What are some areas that get you most excited and what are things that potentially you're trying to avoid that you think are overhyped? Um, on the interest side, there are a, a lot of um, you know, trends that I think are worth following. But one of the more interesting ones is that within the banking ecosystem, I think the banks are starting to stare at how they get work done. And the more they stare at how they get work done, the more you realize that uh, there are archaic processes that exist where people are doing things that would be better done by uh, technology. Um, there's a huge software replacement cycle that's coming. And, you know, what's really interesting about it is it's not a software replacement cycle where you've got to tear out, you know, giant systems and, you know, pr and redo processes that have been in place for decades, you know, and have these big bang tech projects. You know, I think that there's built, built purpose technology that's solving smaller problems within the institutions that, makes it less scary to actually procure the technology to solve real problems. So an example, we invested in a company recently called, you know, Contract Simply, uh, which is in the construction lending space, right? And you would think that, 
building software to sell into banks to help them manage the draw process for um, you know their construction lending portfolios might sound like a small niche, but if you actually look globally, you know it's somewhere between ten and twenty trillion dollars a year worth of projects where there are draws that are managed by banks, and the technology that they have literally is spreadsheets where they you know ingest information about the projects. They have documentation that gets handed to them by general contractors every time that they want to make a draw. And, you know, literally paper is printed out and human beings are just comparing uh, what the contractor said they were going to do with, you know, what they actually did do. And technology can do this so much better, so much faster with so, um, so much of an error reduction relative to human beings that it's not that scary for these construction lending departments to say, wow, there's a software solution that makes my life easier where I have fewer errors, I can get draws out faster, the contractors are happier, and I can make more money by doing it because by getting the draws out earlier, I end up uh, charging interest earlier. So it's just a simple example of you know turning over a rock within a very large bank and saying, wow, this is a, a simple problem that technology can come in and solve if you have someone who understands the problem. And we're looking at uh, all sorts of problems within the banks with AML and KYC. You know, we're seeing some of our companies do uh, quite well selling into the banks, um, helping them with those big problems. Uh, we have problems that are being solved around uh, OCR and ingestion of documents and turning documents into data. Um, we have a company in the space called Ocrelis. And again, in the KYC and AML space, we have ones, Arachnis, um, you know, and a few others. So, you know, again, it's it's a very interesting space just looking at the software replacement cycle within banks because there's a lot of money um, to be made by helping the banks do things more efficiently. So that's just an example of one thing we're pretty excited about. Software continues to eat the world, it seems. Uh, I don't see it stopping. Yeah. And you recently gave a talk at Money 2020 around the looming recession. How much of that was a forecast? How much of that was more of a precaution? Are you forecasting a recession in 2019, 2020? Well, my job is not to forecast. Uh, I, I gave up that job when I left Capital One. Um, but I, I will say, you know, if um, if you're looking at the trends and the the power and and I would say the I guess health of the overall balance sheet of the consumer and the economy. Um, there are a lot of ways of looking at the data that point towards a recession, and there's a lot of ways of looking at the data that say that the balance sheets are very healthy. So it's very difficult to predict when something is going to happen. It's not a matter of if it's going to happen. I mean, it's a very cyclical nature of you know consumer and small balance. Uh, small business balance sheets, it, there are going to be periods of disruption and there are going to be periods where, you know, the uh, unlevering needs to take place uh, and sometimes that turns into losses and sometimes that turns into just less demand in the market for product. But what I will say is uh, we're looking at it very closely. You know, it's something that I think uh, some expert economists are saying that there is a pretty good chance that something happens this year. 
Uh, and if not this year, there's an even greater chance that it happens next year. And, you know, I think the operative issue for, you know, lenders and some of the other fintechs that rely on a healthy balance sheet, you know, is making sure that you have lending policies in place that, you know, are specifically limited, your limiting your exposure to people who are on edge from um, an insolvency standpoint. You know, the point that I made in the Money 2020 talk was that people talk about recessions as this big giant thing, but in reality, it's about at the individual level, someone moving from being technically solvent to technically insolvent on a monthly basis. You know, they go from being able to use their free cash flow to pay bills to all of a sudden not being able to pay bills. And, you know, the the people and the corporations that are most at risk are the ones that are on edge right now, where a small disruption to their income or their revenue stream and, you know, they move from, you know, technical solvency to technical insolvency on a monthly basis. So a lot of the advice that I give is, you know, tracking what's happening within your portfolio and putting policies in place uh, to make sure you're limiting your exposure to the people with the highest DTIs and the people and corporations that are most exposed. And there's a big element of limiting your downside, but do you see some upside around other verticals? personal finance, health, for example, or does QED not look at, you know, does not make cyclical bets like that? Well, being a fintech specialist means that you have to live with the cycles. You know, we are a hammer in search of nail. You know, that, that's the kind of investor we are. We know very little, but what we know, we know very deep. And, you know, in lending in particular, it means you will go through cycles. And it's about managing them and it's not fun while you're living them. And it's a lot of fun when you're coming out of them because it gives you opportunity to, you know, grab outsized market share if you, you know, are really paying attention to what's happening and can put your foot on the gas, you know, when you see that things are curing. Um, but there are lots of parts of the ecosystem. I mean, lending doesn't stop in a recession. Movement of money does not stop in a recession. Um, you know, the software replacement cycle within banks, you know, this is something that they think about over multi-year periods, you know, so uh, there, there are a lot of parts of the, the industry that I think are going to be cyclical. Um, there are other parts that they're going to exist no matter what, it's just at what scale. So I think part of, um, what makes us valuable, I would say to some of these companies is that. We won't panic if the economy starts to change. We've been there and done that, been through cycles before. It's really about managing your way through it. And it really isn't fun. I mean, I have to admit, I've lived a couple of them. Um, and, you know, living through a recession and trying to manage your business is really hard. But if you do it well, you can come out the other side stronger than you were before and grab outsized market share. And on that backdrop, do you have any advice for students? looking to break into fintech or VC specifically? Sure. Um, on the VC side, I, I do get the question a lot. You know, there are people coming right out of college who think it's a, a really cool job where you get to talk to really interesting companies and, um, you know, get to help them with their growth. Um, the reality is there are some businesses that you can understand really well just by being a really smart person, right? So I call them MBA problems or MBA industries, where if you're, 
you know, a top MBA student, you can tear apart the industry and you can figure out the forces at work and figure out, you know, how to disrupt the incumbents as an outsider looking in. Um, there are other industries that aren't like that, where if you're not an insider, if you haven't actually built a business before in the space, you actually don't know how it really works. And as an outsider looking in, you miss the nuance and the nuance is where all the value is created uh, or all of the problems are that, you know, you don't understand and will run into issues, you know, if you can't solve your way through them. Uh, and I think a lot of the, the businesses in the financial services space are more of that second category. So if you have any interest in being a, you know, venture capitalist, you have to be an operator first you know, in the fintech space. And again, it's a bias. There are some incredibly talented VCs that are exceptions to the rule. Um, you know, I have mad respect for a handful of people who have never been operators and are great investors. But I would say a general rule of thumb in the fintech space is go do something first. You know, go become an expert on moving money, you know, uh, be part of a payments company or be part of a lending company and become an expert on how lending works you know, work within a bank or a financial institution. And I think the experience that you would get, you know, just with, you know, half a dozen years of experience of really doing something in the weeds, it will arm you well to either build something on your own at some point in the future, um, work for a bigger company and have a great career, or, you know, maybe try your hand at some point on being an investor, because now you come with industry level experience that can be really valuable. That's fantastic advice. Frank, I want to thank uh, you so much for your time. Well, thank you very much.